and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated, sometimes, to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. Now, normally I would ask you how you are, and we would go into a normal spiel about what audio adventure we're going to cover this week, and you would give us a plot summary. Um, But we're not doing that this week, because this is an emergency episode of Talking Who to You. What could be more exciting than that? And the reason that we're doing this is because of Fugitive of the Judoon. Now, obviously, this is the middle story in the current run of the 13th Doctor's second season, and it's quite a game changer. There is a lot going on in this story. So we've decided to record um, an emergency episode to cover everything that we have in the episode. So, um, Kev, would you like to give us a summary of this episode? Sure. Fugitive of the Jadoon starts with the Jadoon coming to Earth to seek an alien fugitive, and the Doctor gets in their way, and uh, who cares about that part of it? (laughs) Because, first off, Jack Harkness is back, and he has a message to deliver to the Doctor that he delivers through her companions, but also, the fugitive the Jadoon is seeking is none other than the Doctor herself. This case, in a new body we have never seen before, played by Joe Martin, who has disguised herself using chameleon arch under the identity of Ruth Clayton. And so as the Jadoons sort of slowly fade into the background and come back a little bit at the end just to get dispatched along with their Gallifreyan employer, we're left not thinking about the story mechanics of that so much or the love triangle Ruth found herself in, but more about uh, there's a new incarnation of the Doctor we've never heard of before. And as a little bonus, Jack's back. That's great. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank- Well, okay, now we've got that bit out of the way. How are you doing this week, Kev? Uh, I'm still a little wired. <laughs> it was really <laughs> insane watching this. And I was unfortunately spoiled on it, thanks to some very trigger-happy Twitter users. But even being spoiled watching it is still just electric. It's a crazy episode. There's so much going on. Yeah, it was really something. I kind of have the same thing as well. I, I watched this live and I was completely unspoiled. So every kind of revelation that came out, it was just all you know, completely fresh, completely new, and it was such a, yeah, I, I don't know that this is a perfect episode of Doctor Who, we'll, we'll get into sort of discussing it as we go through the whole thing, but I think there has rarely been a more exciting episode of Doctor Who, if you know what I mean, for just for the kind of, oh my god, kind of angle, um, there's just so much that gets sort of thrown out, uh, you know, covering this, so we have to start somewhere, so... Where do you want to start? The Revelations, the Jadoon, the Companions, the Doctor, the other Doctor? Uh, what do you fancy? Uh, let's start with my, honestly, favorite bit of the episode. I want to start with uh, John Barrowman returning to the show. It's uh, That was so fun. And it was just so, like, I know we've covered Lives of Captain Jackson's podcast before. We know that John Barrowman has sort of kept in habit of playing this character. This is nothing of, like, the number of Torchwood audios we have yet to sort of unpack. But... Still, it's just so nice to see him on screen and still have it. And the way he interacted with Graham and later Ryan and Yaz is just so lovely and funny. It's just such a... It's just so fun to have that character back and to have John Barrowman really give it his all. Yeah, it felt absolutely glorious. And, and like, being unspoiled on it, I was watching this with my husband and we were just sitting on the sofa. My husband's on the... He only kind of really watches Doctor Who because I do. Uh, so he's a, like at best the most casual of casual fans, and we were just kind of sitting there, like sort of talking, and 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 then the, the, you get the voice sort of fifteen seconds before you get his appearance, and we were sort of looking at each other, going, "I couldn't. That guy sounds a lot like somebody's either doing a really ropey American accent, or or 
oh, oh my god, it's Jack! And it was like such a such a jaw-dropping moment. It was just really amazing. And he just he of course he makes a grand entrance and bounds on stage and he's he's everything you would want from Jack sort of returning after a decade of absence in uh, in Doctor Who. And like you say, yeah, he's just still got it. He's still been playing the character for for Big Finish, so he's he's still got his hand in, as it were. And he's just such a, such a joy to behold on screen. Yeah, he's, he's just lovely here. I think his appearance here is also a great microcosm of the episode as a whole. Because, I mean, when he's not flirting or being funny, he's delivering this like very uh, portentous arc, for lack of a better term, BS. <laughs> Something about the last Cyberman, and I don't know. None of that has much interest to me as it's just sort of ominous words. But you buy it because it's John Barrowman as Jack, and he's saying those things. And so it's just, even as like stuff that is usually red flags from watching Doctor Who, I, I'm pretty sure I've said in this podcast before, I'm sort of very agnostic about putting arcs and big mysteries in Doctor Who. But, yeah, it's coming from Jack. I wouldn't mind. <laughs> it's a great use for exposition. Well, he's just so charming at being able to deliver it, and that, that does make a difference. It helps it all go down, you know, so much easier. And, and one of the things with the... Captain Jack is that when he interacts with uh, any other part of the Doctor's sort of world, so when he meets Martha, when he meets Rose, when he's uh, even meeting Jackie, you know, he just has that ability to develop instant chemistry. Like from the first line when he's speaking to Graham, it's there. Even before Graham gets the big kiss in the lips, you know, it's there. It happens again with Ryan. It happens again with Yaz. He's just, you know, it's like one of his genuine skills is that he's just very charismatic to watch on screen and he can just form this instant rapport with people and and that's exactly how it proves here and so yeah you're right he's delivering kind of the big pretentious message the you know basically beware the ides of march for for lack of any other comparison but he he does it in such a charming way and he does it with such ease when he's he's talking to these companions that yeah you, you just can't help but kind of even if you're not invested in it you can't help but kind of get pulled along with it yeah and it's i think it's almost knowingly like we have to deliver this sort of portentous sort of setup for a series season finale so let's have Jack do it, because that just makes it go down so much easier. If we have to sort of indulge in this sort of thing, uh, having it come from John Barrowman, everyone's going to accept that much readier. And of course, like that's accurate. <laughs> it's not it's not a complaint. I mean, I'm glad they did. And I really hope this means he's going to show up for the season finale as well. I would be staggered if this is the only appearance of, of Captain Jack. It suddenly, it, it, it suddenly makes sense of that really unexpected Torchwood reference back in the first episode of Spyfall which nobody expected. I think it's uh, C just sort of absentmindedly sort of says, oh, you know, um, unit don't exist anymore. Torchwood don't exist anymore. And it was such a weird thing because Torchwood hasn't been referenced in such a long time. And yet now it looks like foreshadowing. But I, I haven't read anything in reviews or fan write-ups or anything else that suggested, oh, I wonder if that's something which is going to come up in the future. It was just this kind of weird offhanded comment, but now it kind of makes sense. And I kind of, I really like little details like that. I like, you know, that feels like smart writing. And I, uh, yeah, I, I want to see more of uh, John Barrowman in the show. Of course I do. I'm dying to see him interact with Jodie Whittaker. That's just going to be amazing when that happens. And uh, yeah, nice wig. Yeah, I would love to see him interact with Jodie Whittaker. And I think that's almost sort of the big 
one of the big teases of this episode is the fact that we don't get that. But it's a kind of smart withholding, I think. Because that way, now we have something to look forward to. The Jack's arc isn't really closed in the show yet until at least we get that sort of interaction. So, and it also means the Doctor has more time freed up for the other big thing on this show, which I, I just set us up for a great transition, but I do want to just one go back a little bit and also say that I think what you're talking about was Tortured coming up again. I think Chibnall has this good sense of continuity with the previous two eras that Moffat didn't have with the Davies era. With Moffat, it felt much more like a clean break of him doing whatever he wanted to do. But Chibnall seems to actively want to sort of engage with these past histories of Doctor Who. And I think that is uh, significant and uh, very cool as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's interesting having spent so long denying Doctor Who's history, basically through the entirety of the previous season, to now see those huge sort of swings at continuity, uh, uh, you know, characters coming back, whatever it is. It speaks to a, a real degree of confidence in the way that he's able to kind of juggle these elements. Now, whether any of this comes together or not is, is a, a separate question. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on here and it could, it could easily be brilliant and it could easily, you know, be catastrophic. But right now, it's just there's so much energy in this script. And that's, that's the other thing that you get, you know, when you've got John Barrowman stuck in there. He just fizzes with energy and he brings such a, a dynamism, even, even to scenes which are just, you know, here comes the exposition. And the episode is really good at kind of balancing its energy levels. And that hasn't been a feature of the Chibnall Edge. But the way, like, for example, before they get to the lighthouse, we get a scene with, um, with the doctor, uh, you know, in a car. And she's just very quietly sort of interrogating she's got this cynicism isn't exactly the right word but she's just asking questions of Ruth and trying to get down to the you know the real understanding of her then we get to the lighthouse and then we get the chameleon arch and then we get the birdie tardis and all this kind of stuff but the way that it slows down like that and gives the episode space to breathe that feels so kind of redolent of the RTD era. So you're right. I think the engagement with the, the past of the show is very there, but it's not just in terms of like the, the big arcs or the big continuity things. I think the, the sort of um, the, the sort of energy levels and the beat of the episode is also kind of doing that. And it's amazing what a difference it makes. It, it really, this feels like such a, a well-paced episode and it's because we get these slow moments where there's time for a bit of reflection, there's time for some interrogation or or whatever it is, and it just, it makes the episode come alive. Absolutely. It's, I think that is sort of what differentiates this episode from what could be a much more sort of, uh, it differentiates this episode from a Let's Kill Hitler. <laughs> trying to find a polite way to say that, but it's definitely, there's more grounding in the characters here and less just stuff being thrown at you every three seconds. Uh, differentiates from a sort of spy fall even, which I also thought was a little overcrowded. And I think part of that might come from uh, co- Chibnall's co-writer on this episode, Vinay Patel, who wrote Demons of the Punjab last season. And that was also sort of a more slower, more character-focused episode. I think that sort of hand here really helps it out. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think, I mean, like mentioning Spyfall, what, I, I, I rewatched Spyfall once since it was broadcast, and it, it really went up in my estimation. I enjoyed it a lot more on a second viewing. But now it feels like 
the prologue to which this is the chapter, if you know what I mean. This this feels like it's... Like, there are moments in Spyfall, like there's a moment in the second episode where the companions are in the kind of half-built housing estate because they're on the run, and we get a couple of moments where it does slow down and they kind of start asking questions about what's going on. But it's not quite balanced as, as well as it is here, even though it's sort of kind of doing the same thing. But yeah, here, with those moments where we get the slower... The, the slower beats and, and the slower um, sort of character moments. I agree with you. I think it's Vinnie Patel's uh, sort of influence here. And and it just... I don't know how the script was divvied up, of course. I don't know which bit uh, Chris Gibner wrote and which bit uh, Vinnie Patel wrote. Although we, I think we can probably guess. Um, but, uh, but, um, but whatever it is, whatever that sensibility is... Um, in terms of being able to control those character moments and control the way that the script is uh, sort of moving forward, you can definitely see progress on from, from the way that Spyfall did it. And Spyfall didn't do it that badly. I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm being harsh towards Spyfall, but this just does it much better. Yeah, I think it's that balance that really makes up should sing. And I, I guess let's talk about the other big twist. <laughs> let's sort of finally get around to it. Uh, a new incarnation of the Doctor. And... I it, Joe Martin. I think it solely rests on her shoulders to sort of pull this off. It's something that could very easily feel sort of cheaper, shoehorned in, if it just comes coming out of the blue like this. But ugh, Joe Martin makes a fantastic Doctor, so it makes me very happy to sort of see it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that moment, that revelation, um, like all the way through the episode, there was we obviously we knew that there was something up with her. We knew that there was something going on that wasn't just on the level. She just wasn't this innocent tour guide from, from Gloucester. And the more it went through, the more you, you, you can't help but think, well, what's this going to be? And never in a million years would I have come up with the answer, oh, she's the doctor. That was such a, a brilliant play. Like, even when they were doing the, like, there was a certain point where they were doing that, like, follow the light, break the glass. I was thinking, okay, yeah, maybe a touch pretentious, but and then you start to think, ah, oh, that does sound familiar. And then you think it's the chameleon arch. Even when the chameleon arch was happening, I was thinking, it's going to be the Rani. It's definitely going to be the <laughs> That's what was in the back of my mind. Because we haven't had another, you know, like big returning character that hasn't been touched for, by sort of Davis or Moffat. So I was thinking, oh, God, if they go for the Rani, I'm just going to die in my seat here. That was going to be so cool that they've played it that way. Um, and then it's the Doctor, and it's like, oh my god, that's even more cool, that's so phenomenal. I, I, I had a, a smile that practically wrapped around the whole of my skull at that point. It was just, it was such a well-delivered kind of moment. And you're right, Joe Martin is, is so great, and she gives two, you know, completely different performances. You know, as as Ruth, she's she's nice, but kind, a little bit bumbling, but she's, she's just, you know sort of fairly regular, sort of fairly normal kind of character that's going to get caught up in whatever, you know, shenanigans the Doctor's involved with this week. But the moment she becomes the Doctor, it's a completely different performance. And it's not just in the voice, it's in the way that she stands, it's in the way that she projects herself, it's the confidence. It's it's such a kind of bravura performance. I can't really, well, I could ramble on about it a lot longer than I already have, but I just, I can't praise it enough. Yeah, I, I like you're saying, like, even down to, like, sort of, way she sort of just stands is just very significant and like powerful and it's just I, I'm trying to avoid saying doctorish because who can define what is a doctor but it's not yeah, yeah, no, it, it absolutely is it, it just instantly yeah it 
And the transformation between those two characters is so well done. I think Joe Martin, like, it's all on her shoulders, and she pulls it off so well. Like, in lesser hands, this would be, like I've said before, a lot tackier, a lot less interesting. But I was so long for the ride, because just from the moment she starts playing the Doctor. Because it's such a fun character playing the Doctor. And it's almost a little frustrating that she is in this sort of John Hurt status from now and forever, has this sort of in-between Doctor who, if she's lucky, will get a lot of big finish box sets, but not, you know, a proper numbered Doctor, because she is so good at it. She is amazing. And I think this is, I think I'm right in saying, I don't believe that I've ever seen her in anything else. Looking over her filmography, she's done a whole raft of sort of very kind of bog standard like um british tv you know she's been in holby city she's been in east enders hollyoaks the bill it's all very kind of familiar you know this is this is just you know this is what every actor goes through they've all been in these shows they've been running forever um and there's nothing in it which i i I think i've ever seen um but there's also nothing in it that necessarily suggests that she's capable of a performance of that level you know they're all things like eastenders or holby city they're they're you know they're soap operas they're not you know necessarily big kind of prime time drama or whatever i don't mean that necessarily to denigrate them but it's just you get different performances in those kind of shows and yet the second she steps out and she's the doctor she's got the costume on she's got the look going the whole thing and it's just Oh, it's such a powerful moment. And 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 Joe Martin just she's so crucial to everything with that working and she just could not be stronger. It's yeah, and what a good costume. I mean oh, yes. I that's the thing <laughs> is the costume and the TARDIS interior, everything about this is such a very specifically well designed doctor. And this and in a very classic way too. I guess we'll get into soon where we think she fits in the Doctor's timeline, but it's definitely going for the whole 60s edging on 70s vibe that Chibnall's clearly wants us to sort of think about when we see this doctor sort of style and it it conveys that so well and i know I, one of the things that kind of makes it feel sort of convincingly doctory is the way that the 13th doctor and we have to find some way of referring to her and i'm grudging to use the doctor ruth thing which is coming in but okay whatever um the way that those two characters interact with each other like they 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 snipe at each other and they, they take pot shots at each other's clothing and you know oh well you're all unicorns and rainbows and all this kind of stuff you know um and that feels authentically of the doctor when the doctor meets him or herself but at the same time it's not just replicating you know dialogue from a previous you know it's it's not the dandy and a clown line from the three doctors or or whatever or jokes about decorative vegetables it's its own thing and that's great because it would be so easy in that moment to have a line which is just a, a callback or something else. But it doesn't do that. It doesn't take the easy kind of nostalgia tweak. It, it's just this is how these two doctors interact. And it's, it's, it's very similar to the way that we've heard other doctors when they meet interact with each other. But it's not the same. And I really admire that. We've said it before, especially when talking about Big Finish. But not everything has to be a reference to something. Not everything has to be, uh, oh, I recognize that line from dot, dot, dot. You know, it's like sleepers for tortoises and all these lines that keep getting recycled. We don't have that here. And I really admire that restraint because it would have been so easy to go for the kind of fan baiting here. And, and that's not what we get. They essentially say, you've redecorated, I don't like it. 
without saying it in that many words. Because exactly. if they said it in that many words, it would be a little obnoxious. But instead, you get the same vibe, but in its own sort of unique permutation of these two doctors meeting. Exactly. And yeah, it's it's a uh, it's fantastic. It's I think that's a great sort of jumping off point to talk about Jodie Whittaker in this episode, who is on like a five episode hot streak of being incredible. <laughs> oh, I love Jodie in this so much. I think this is the best performance she's given as the Doctor, and you'll know you'll remember from the, our discussions of Spyfall. I just adored her in Spyfall. Um, yeah, she is just. Oh my god! It's it's. I suppose it's frustrating in a way that we haven't had more material that she's given like this, especially last season. We could have really stood to have had some material which gave her this kind of depth and this kind of um, this kind of scope to broaden out the Doctor. We've had it a little bit in in Orphan Fifty Five, and um, I think maybe even a bit more in uh, Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror. But this is her going full throttle. Oh, she is so phenomenal here. Yeah, I. She does this sort of thing with, like, her face and her body language and everything where she figures it out before we do. And even if she doesn't – I think it's more suspicion with her until she actually sees that TARDIS. But you can tell she's picking at a scab, and she's reluctantly picking at it but has to pick at it. And seeing her pull this thread is just so fantastic. It's, like, all in the sort of subtext of her performance. Oh, yeah. It's it's such a brilliant moment. And And – What's great about it is is that it's not something which is just restricted to her interactions uh, with Joe Martin's doctor. It's the same way that she has, you know, much more kind of brittle relationship with her companions as well. You know, they start calling her out on, on especially, you know, right at the end of the episode, they're calling her out and asking her what's going on. And she very kind of, she's very brittle in the way that she dismisses them and that kind of you don't know me at all you know i'm, I'm more than two thousand years old you've, you've got absolutely no clue who i am and to be fair the companions stand up for them and they try and do the whole kind of you know yeah but we're family we're, we're together whatever and i don't like the doctor plays it that um that, okay she, she takes what they say on board i'm not convinced that the doctor does i think she may be putting that on just to sort of mollify them but either way, I I just really love the fact that her her performance and the range that she's given is is extended out beyond just the kind of the the, the plot elements or the the, the new doctor or, or you know uh, the other Gallifreyan that we meet or whatever. It it's something which extends right the way through the whole kind of performance across the episode, and that makes it feel sort of much more organic, much more sort of naturally fitting to the character. To pick at one specific thing you said, it's a dynamic I really like this season, where uh. Jodie's doctor is sort of being very withholding with her companions. Mm. It's a dynamic that really annoyed me when David Tennant did it, but <laughs> I buy it a lot more when it's coming from her. I think it's just performance shifts. I think she's a lot less showy with this sort of director. It's a, it's a lot like uh, later era McCoy in that sort of sense. Yeah. Which is a comment I don't give out willy-nilly. It's a, <laughs> it's, it's a very sort of fascinating, interesting dynamic where she's being much more withholding She's talked about going to Gallifrey, but hasn't mentioned that it's been destroyed to them. And she brings up that Joe Martin is playing that Ruth Clayton was an incarnation of her, but didn't quite go into all the details of that it's this much darker incarnation, or that it's uh, she doesn't know how it fits into her timeline quite so much. And I think that's such an interesting narrative to have, where I, again... <laughs> I, I hate that I mean I have this sort of negative impulse of, but they no way they pay it off well. Just because 
I've been kind of soured on this last few seasons of Doctor Who trying to pay off things like that. But I really hope that there is a payoff at the same time to seeing these companions grow more disillusioned with uh, the Doctor as she sort of is a worse leader in sort of misleading them like this. Yeah, I think it's. I think it is an absolutely fascinating dynamic. I think it's such a such a fascinating detail that she's been kind of dropping her companions off somewhere and then just leaving them, and she's going off and searching for the master and going back to Gallifrey and whatever, um, and and she just kind of abandons her companions in order to, uh, you know, in the thinnest of pretexts, um, so that she can go off and explore, you know, the thing that interests her, and obviously at that particular point, the thing that interests her. Is, is not Graham, Ryan and Yaz. It's, it's her own story. It's her own um, quest to find the master and discover what's happened to Gallifrey. That's such a an interesting detail. And I love the way that it's underplayed. They don't like, again, if this had been um, David Tennant in the role, this would have been a massive point of angst. It would have been a huge kind of, you know, swelling of the orchestra and up comes the choir moment as he admits that he's been away doing this. Here it's played in a completely opposite kind of register. It's it's relatively low key, but it's such a significant moment. It speaks so much about the way this doctor is withholding from her companions, not just information when they ask her questions, but she's just literally, you know, buggering off and leaving them to it while she goes away and does her own thing. That's that's a very kind of new dynamic. And it's really exciting. It gives the character of the Doctor somewhere to go that we haven't seen. I, I, I agree when you uh, when you mentioned like the 10th Doctor and all that kind of stuff. I, I completely agree with everything that you, you say there. And it's just, I, I just, I'm so loving the way that this Doctor is, is kind of developing and growing and, and having her own sort of ways of approaching things. I, I, I couldn't, when I say I couldn't imagine this story with another Doctor, it's not that none of the other Doctors could have played this role or played this story. They could have done. But this still somehow feels so unique to the 13th Doctor. This wouldn't work if it was Capaldi. This wouldn't work if it was Smith. Um, it, it just... It, that's not an insult to them, but it just feels so... Such a core element of the of the 13th Doctor that we're seeing kind of emerging here. And that makes the character so exciting. It makes it so worth engaging with. I think that's one of the biggest positive season 12 that we've seen so far, is that it really does feel tailor-made to its cast. Whereas a lot of the episodes last season, you could sort of play the sort of shuffle game around with them and still get fairly solid episodes. This is being written to Jodie Whittaker and the rest of the cast's strengths. And I think that makes a world of difference. And I think that's why there hasn't been any duds so far this season, is most, mostly because the writers sort of know how to write and who to write for this, like this go-around. And that means that we're getting like a lot more interesting stories that the cast can handle very well. Well, absolutely. And I think one of the most interesting aspects about this is that the character, the, the writers, sorry, that we're having back this season are, broadly speaking, uh, this isn't going to be true next week, but broadly speaking, they're the ones that people went, oh, well, they should definitely come back. Like Demons of the Punjab was an absolute triumph of, of uh, story last season. If, if if one wanted to argue that that was the best episode of last season, I wouldn't I wouldn't have a problem with that. I 
personally would probably shade towards uh, It Takes You Away, but I would have no problem at all with anybody thinking it was uh, Demons of the Punjab. And so that means that we're getting a writer coming back who's worked with the character, who's clearly an extremely skilled writer, um, but who's also, this you know, this is this could not be really a more different story from a, a kind of thoughtful exploration of, uh, you know, the, the evils of colonialism. This is, you know, this is a kind of balls to the wall, let's just go for it, swing for the fences, um, you know, piece of Doctor Who lore. And that's phenomenal. It's got, it's got such a great energy. But when you get these writers coming back and when you have these writers who are, are able to be harnessed, we had it with, um, say, Peter Harness, um, you know, during uh, Peter, Mo- uh, sorry, during uh, Stephen Moffat's run. You get these writers who you think, OK, now that we know we can get these writers on board, you know, this is this is what we want to have. And this is the this is what they're going to bring uh, to the table. And um, you know, for Orph- something like Orphan 60, uh, 55, I can't even say it properly now. Sorry, something like Orphan 55, um, you know, it was a slight letdown. Um, but I think that's only because of the pedigree of um, It Takes You Away. And, you know, there's, you can't help but have expectations. So when you have, you know, a writer like Ed Heim and he's, he's uh, turned out an episode as good as that, you want Orphan 55 to be as good as that. And it isn't. Orphan 55 isn't. I don't think it's a bad story. I think it's a, a messy story that's got a lot to recommend it. But it's not as good as uh, it's. So when we have um, uh, Vinnie Patel coming back and, and doing a story which is every bit as good as uh, Demons of the Punjab, but in a completely different register, it's such a... Like, I can't wait to see what he's going to write next season because he, he can prove that he can do Doctor Who in more than just one mode. It's not just a, a historical or it's not just an action adventure. He can, he's can he got he's got range, he's got scope. So I'm, I'm dying to find out what he's going to come up with next. Absolutely. I definitely think Vinay Patel will probably end the season as sort of the superstar of it, unless like we get really surprised by the season finale or one of the upcoming episodes. But to sort of take all these complicated things and like handle it so well in such an energizing and fun way. I think that's like, that's real talent. And I mean, no question. Well, I'm sort of split. I mean, this is definitely the most technically proficient story of the season for sure. And I think the only reason I'm sort of hesitating on calling it my favorite is because it is not what I like to see from Dr. Who and from a pure subjective standpoint, but no question in terms of degree of difficulty and how well it's pulled off and the few, the minimal amount of sort of obvious flaws and messiness. This is sort of the best, clearest home run of the series so far. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, the funny thing about this is this is um, this is now the third time in five episodes that I've said, wow, this is the best episode the Chibnall era has given us. Because watching the first episode of Spyfall, and it has that set, particularly the last few minutes when the Masters revealed at the end of Spyfall Part 1, it has that same, you know, anything can happen, swing for the fences kind of energy. And I watched that and thought, yeah, this is the best episode the Chibnall era has given it. Then I thought it again at Spyfall Part 2, and now I've thought it again <laughs> with with the Fugitive of the of the Jadoon. And that's that's quite something. That That must mean... That we're we're getting a good season somewhere, and even the other two stories, you know, Orphan Fifty Five and uh, Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror, they're 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 both good stories. They're both there's a lot to recommend. Both of those stories, they're they're a bit messy. They could both maybe do with a revision or two, but they're both still very engaging stories. I'm I'm kind of loving this season. 
Yeah, it's a really great season overall so far. And I think that the team deserves a, like a lot of credit for sort of writing it this way. It's been very fun. And like so far, five episodes and none of them have been real duds. And I can quibble that none of them have been super classics that you would put on sort of a canonizing wall of great Doctor Who episodes. But, you know, it's we still have half a season left to go. <laughs> and also, I mean, at least, like, fitting comfortably into that sort of 6 to 8 out of 10 range, I feel that's, that's a better thing than last season, <laughs> where I feel like the average quality was much lower, even if you did get something as uh, stellar as Demons of Punjab, where it takes you away. It's definitely just overall a much more consistent season of Doctor Who, and that's not nothing. No, absolutely not. And uh, I think consistency is really is really the thing. Uh, the averaging of the, the, the quality of the episodes so far, okay, we're halfway through the season, um, but it just has been, you know, so much higher. There's, there's, there's just no doubt about that. And it gives that energy, it gives that dynamism. So even when we do get a messy episode, it doesn't derail the season. In fact, I, I, I have no problem with Doctor Who being messy, as long as it's interesting messy. And I think that it's probably a fair way of describing the previous two episodes. Um, you know, they're interesting, messy. They're not. They're not bad, messy. And I'm. I'm sort of fine with that. I. I really don't mind. Um, I have no idea. Like, if I had to rate this at ten or give it a letter grade or something, I. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I would fall. I'd need to watch it again to to make my mind up. But it's. But the mere fact that we've been able to. Um, you know get so excited by this story and you know the fact that you know we basically dropped everything and said right we're recording an emergency episode of the podcast because we need to discuss this that's also not nothing that's it, it says something about the kind of the electricity that that kind of surrounds this story and the excitement that kind of uh is able to engender and you know doctor who's suddenly out in, not out of nowhere but it's suddenly it's being talked about everywhere it's all over the media you know organizations or, or papers or, or websites that would never normally talk about doctor who are suddenly getting stuck into it so it's a real kind of jolt for the series it's really giving it something and, and that kind of mid-season push you know um for all that i love missy the revelation of who was in the vault uh, in peter capaldi's final season did not give the same kind of jolt that 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 all the revelations here gave and so yeah again that's that's really not nothing it's it's a real achievement to kind of pull that off and and to pull it off with such sort of swagger and confidence yeah yeah i mean that just deserves all the praise in the world just sort of doing a snap judgment from the excitement i've seen on twitter and facebook and sort of everywhere else this feels like the most vital Doctor Who episode since the 50th in terms of getting people to talk about it and getting people to sort of feel excited about Doctor Who again. Completely and, agree. Yeah, that is really impressive considering how hard that's been. And like this, the show just from diminishing live watching and other sort of factors has just felt a lot more inessential over the last few years. And finally, this feels like a real shot in the arm to be able to surprise viewers like this. I feel like that's such a hard quality to sort of harness, but I feel like they've actually managed and done it. Well, yeah, and, and not just surprise viewers, but surpri surprise kind of like long-term, you know, dyed-in-the-wool, you know, Ricardo-own-podcast fans as well, you know. It's, it's everybody was sort of taken in by this. Everybody was kind of... Like, I know 
subsequent to having seen the episode and read some stuff online, I know there are some people who were sort of slightly spoiled in the possibility that there might be another version of the Doctor in this. But like basically everybody had just written it off as incredibly stupid or there's no possible way that they would do that. And then they did. <laughs> That's fantastic. It's just, I, I love that kind of dynamic where, um, you know, it's it's like Russell T. Davis spending two years saying, oh God, the Master's rubbish. I'm never, ever going to bring back the Master. The Master's a terrible enemy. Why would anybody want to bring him back? He did that for two years just so that he could have the reveal at the end of Utopia with uh, Derek Jacobi. And that's great. You know, I, I like it when um, when our expectations are subverted. I like it when the writers are, are good enough and confident enough um, to produce material like that. Moffat's done it as well. Um, you know, especially with the revelation of the War Doctor, you know, that's such a that was exactly the same moment and introducing John Hurt as the Doctor and then, you know, 15 million jaws hit the floor. It's just, that's such a, a lovely way of doing it and this is the first time that Chris Chibnall has pulled that trick since he took over as showrunner and he's nailed it it's, and that's fantastic. Yeah, speaking of hiding things, I just want to, I'd be remiss if I didn't cite this bit from the Doctor Who wiki. Uh, John Berriman had to fake a house renovation in Cardiff to keep it secret that he was filming for Doctor Who. <laughs> in fact, in order to keep up the ruse, Berriman actually did carry out this renovation. Wow, that's 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 method. That's, uh, that's really going for it. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. That's really cool. Um, yeah, good yeah. for him. Yeah. Yeah, that's just a very fun thing. But yeah, I really agree. I think that it's so fun to sort of be sort of surprised like this. And even if, like me, you're not surprised because of jerks on Twitter... I think the revelation sort of speaks for itself. Like, there's these are so good moments. Like, and you're talking before how people were, there was chatter about a new incarnation of the Doctor and people were going, that's stupid. But, I, and that, if you told me uh, point blank that's what would happen, and I, that was my first reaction to seeing it on Twitter, I was thinking, that's kind of stupid. But this, it's the strength of this episode. It pulls it off so well. I think it's all in the execution. The execution is just really assured, really confident, and really, really fun. Well, and what I think is, is kind of also so impressive about it is it's basically the same slate of hand that we get in, in Spyfall. The whole point of, I, I, I'm assuming, the whole point of having the Jadun, who are kind of, you know, stompy, stompy bad guys par excellence. There are, there are a few stompy, stompy bad guys that stompy, stompy more than those stompy, stompy bad guys. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just a feint. That's all they're there for. Focus on the returning monster and, and with the full knowledge that that's what everybody's going to be doing. Oh, like why are they bringing back a mid-tier like, enemy from the middle of the 10th Doctor's run? Oh, you know, and it, it kind of almost intentionally deflates expectations. Oh, well, yeah, it's the space rhinos and, you know, there's not a lot you can do with space rhinos and blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of still true, but that's also the point. They are a complete distraction you're not supposed to be looking at the space rhinos you're supposed to be looking down here where there's far more interesting things happening so the way that that whole dynamic is set up with maybe the first quarter or third where it looks like it's going to be a fairly standard kind of alien invasion and the Jadun are good they're they're well written here they're quite funny um you know the rigidity is is, is milk for humor and and for uh, for sort of the ridiculousness of them and that's fine and then everything pivots and then it becomes clear just how kind of unimportant they are to the plot, how much that was meant to be the, the conjurer's trick that you focus on the thing in the front so you can't see the hand working something else behind. It's such a lovely slate of hand, and, and, and it just works. And it's such a 
a great thing for the program that it's able to still pull off those kind of things. I've talked possibly on mic, definitely off mic with you, how I think it's possible to do the Judoon well. I only feel half vindicated by this episode because, like you said, they are completely unimportant to it. And even though they're well-written and kind of what I want to see from them, but the fact that they're so sidelined, it doesn't really matter. No. So I, I'm only going to take a half victory from this. <laughs> but, yeah, I think it's a, it's sort of fantastic how you do that. And also, again, you have the middle sort of side hand with Jack coming back. And that is, like, you thought the junior was strategy from that, and that is a side of hand in and of itself. It's really layered like that, really great. And I, it's just such a fun experience to sort of see the sort of things sort of unravel and sort of get played one after another as there is so much more depth to the story than you thought there was at first with each new revelation. I will say the one thing that wasn't uh, spoiled for me regarding the Joe Martin doctor was that she comes from much earlier in the doctor's timeline, like much, much earlier. And I guess we should now get into what or, our theories or are. Or does she? Yeah. yeah exa- exactly what I was about to ask you. So um, go on, you, you go first. What, what do you think she is? Well, what I realistically think she is is probably something involving alternate universe or timelines. That's the boring answer, but they mentioned it earlier this season. It feels like it would come into play later. I feel like that's sort of the safe bet if I was putting money on it. The more fun thing I've come up with <laughs> is uh, if you triangulate, it has to be post an earthly child because the TARDIS looks like a police box. And I would feel like it was sacrilege if the TARDIS looked like a police box before that story. It has to be uh, before the third and fourth Doctor eras because she doesn't recognize the sonic screwdriver in its current form, which is when sort of son- and also just from the design of the TARDIS and other factors like that. It just is trying to evoke more late 60s than any of those other eras. So that leaves us with really one option, a season 6B Doctor. Yes. Now, I'm not a big fan of the season 6B theory. I don't think it's bad. I think it's an interesting kind of thing to play around with. But I don't know that I... I I've never quite kind of got on board with it somehow. Um, but I don't know. I'm really... Like, I agree with you. I think this is going to be like an Elseworlds or like Crisis on Infinite Gallifrey or whatever. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that's most likely to be the explanation. But there's also a bit of me which is thinking, I don't know. This, this season has done such a good job of subverting expectations. And, and you know, Chris Chibnall is a fan of very, very long standing. There's no doubt that he knows about... Uh, 6B and, and, and anything else, you know, he's, he's, he's a, you know, he's a proper hardcore fan. So I somehow also slightly think that maybe like 6B is like an obvious place for people to go when it comes to this doctor, which makes me think that's not what it's going to be because that feels like it's the same sleight of hand that we were talking about before. Oh, here's 6B just waving at you right here at the front of the stage, whereas somewhere back here, you know, in the wings, is what really is going on is, is, is the thing. So I, I agree with you. I, I think 6B is, is a, a plausible way of this going. But I also, because it's plausible, that also makes me think it's not going to be that. Yeah, and it would also require a lot of explanation. Like I said, I'm not betting on it being 6B. I, I just think it's lines up too perfectly. It's a fun sort of jumping off point to discuss. And uh, I guess I feel like I should explain for those who don't know, 6B is the idea that the Doctor had adventures in between the end of the war games and the Time Lords sentence him, and before the Time Lords regenerate him into the third Doctor. And there was a memory wipe involved. There's so many things that sort of line up 
perfectly if you do like sort of look into what season six B is. But that's it. It lines up it, perfectly. That's, yeah. that's why I don't trust it. <laughs> but there's and, and also, that, but there's also the like the doctor gets a line. She says um, that it can't possibly be her past because they don't know about the destruction of Gallifrey. And, and I know that there's mind wiping involved at the end of, of 6B or, or, or after, you know, the doctor's trial because he's, he, you know, he, he, his uh, ability to understand the TARDIS is removed and, and blah, blah, blah. And he regenerates into John Bradbury. I know that that's sitting there. But there's something about the way the doctor said, no, that it can't be my past because they would know that Gallifrey was destroyed. I, I don't know why I feel that was the important line. But there's something about it. And just, yeah, because it all lines up so well for 6B, it's got to be something else. I'm, I'm really, I, I, I'm with you when you say, you know, it, it would be sacrilege to have a, a police box TARDIS pre an unearthly child. I completely agree with that. I, I don't think that they would do that. Uh, even Moffat didn't do that. He kind of walked up to the line of doing something with, uh, with the first Doctor, with um, Clara helping the Doctor to choose the right TARDIS or whatever, you know. Um, but... I don't think he would do that, but I don't know. I that and that's what makes it so exciting. There's like you can have like a dozen different fan theories. Like maybe it's the Valyard. I don't know. Why not? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> but that she's actually the Valyard, or 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 um, or maybe Gat is the is the Valyard, or maybe Gat is the Rani. I don't know. But you can have like a dozen fan theories, and that's what makes this episode such fun to have a conversation like this with other Doctor Who fans and like we've been doing this podcast for two more than two years now and I, I love doing this podcast with you I, I have such a great time talking about Doctor Who and um, I just enjoy doing it every single week and this episode is such a great example of why we can become so enthused and so passionate and so kind of into the whole thing because yeah there's loads of explanations that you can think it's 6b and i can think it's the valyard and somebody else can think it's a, a pre-william hartnell doctor and somebody else can think something else and whatever oh it's such fun being able to have that pleasure of debating all these things and discussing them and you know it we're definitely not going to get all the answers next week but who knows maybe we'll get other questions raised as well it's just it makes the whole show so exciting at this time and that is not just for Doctor Who fans you know as we said before you know other people are getting drawn into the conversation it's it's such a such a shot in the arm for the show it's such a bolt of electricity and it's just it's kind of thrilling to get pulled along with it yeah I mean I'd feel like a jerk if I didn't also say of course I love doing this podcast with you as well (laughs) it's yeah it's and like you said I agree with everything you said it's just fantastic to sort of have the sort of dialogue around Doctor Who and have it feel essential to have dialogue around again. We're not dragging our feet to talk about this episode in Spyfall like we sort of were last season, where we just had a brief touch-up with Jodie's first episode and then sort of a really quick catch-ups when we ever we had slow weeks. This is it's an emergency episode. It feels much more vital than it has in years, and that is so fantastic. I think vital is exactly the word for it. It just, like you mentioned the 50th, that's what it feels like. And I think this is really the first time the show has had that kind of, that vitality, that that need to be discussed. Really, I think probably since we, we started this podcast. I mean, we had it a little bit when, when Jodie was cast and, you know, we discussed about the first female Doctor and how that was going to work out and what our expectations were back when that occurred. But it felt a little bit more... Like whoever had been cast 
as as the thirteenth Doctor, whether it was uh, Jodie Whittaker or whether it was going to be oh I don't know Mira Sayal or whoever was you know top of top of everybody's list. It doesn't matter. Uh, but whoever that person was when that person was cast, I think we would have probably sat down and had a conversation about it anyway. Um, I, I would have been quite happy if it had been Lenny Henry that had been cast, but you know that's just me. And I think. Um, I think those kind of things, like I'm sure when Jodie leaves, the next person will want to have a conversation about that as well. But that's kind of, that's par for the course. That's that's normally what happens when a doctor regenerates. But n- like this, this kind of vitalness, that need to talk about it, that's something different. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's such a thrill. Absolutely a thrill. Um, so now I feel like we have to <laughs> do an awkward shift because I want to talk about our third and fourth episodes this season without having to sort of save them for a sort of catch up later down the road. But uh, yeah, it feels so weird to sort of go back and talk about them knowing what we know. So I guess I'll keep my thoughts brief. Uh, Orphan 55. I I think you touched on them earlier though. They are both uh, interesting, weird and flawed episodes. And they're definitely, especially Orphan 55, more what I want to see from Doctor Who as a sort of, my general inclination, even in their flawedness, but I appreciate that they're there more so than I appreciated any of the one-offs from last season, or most of them, I should say. Yeah, I think Orphan 55 might end up being the interesting one, um, especially because we get that revelation at the end of Orphan 55 about the fact that this wasn't actually Earth, but it was one alternative timeline or, or whatever it was, and that's a very unusual thing for Doctor Who to do. Normally, we'll get something explicit which says, okay, now we're in a divergent timeline or now we're in a parallel universe or, or you know, whatever it's going to be. This time, it was just kind of de- presented de facto. Okay, this was one alternative timeline and if you don't do something, here comes the finger wagging, then you're going to end up like like the, uh, like the monsters. You know, you're going to destroy the planet. Fine. I love the fact that the episode sort of took a, 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 a furious and kind of impassioned look at it. But now that we've had this episode... And we've had the doctor talking about time swirling around her and the fact that the, you know, Jack Harkness and the master and Gallifrey and, and, and herself and all this stuff is happening. I'm wondering if at some point we're going to go back to War from 55, not necessarily to revisit it, but we'll, we'll, we'll maybe get information which makes that episode make a little bit more sense. A lot of people were very critical about the fact that it was... Uh, just like some random additional timeline, bloody blah, blah, that, you know, wasn't really explained or whatever. So I do wonder if we're going to go back and get that. But I, I do love that episode's passion. I, I think it's a messy episode. I think it's clearly an episode that's either had production difficulties or, or struggled with script writing or script editing or something because it's very, very sloppy in places. But I do love its passion. I love its fury and, and how convinced it is that it needs to do this in order to get its message across. I, I think those aspects of it are terrific. It's very Third Doctor era in that way, which I really appreciate. It's very much like in something like sort of the end of Doctor Who and Silurians or something like The Green Death, where it's like, I have to convey this message. And I really like that about it. I think, I, yeah, I just love it when Doctor Who gets impassioned and when it, there is something to sort of, it's fighting for something. And I think that makes, <laughs> I know Ornament has gotten a lot of hate for being so direct, for being so sloppy, for, like you said, sort of leaving things unexplained. Uh, I think, if I'm being honest, gun to my head, it might be my favorite of the season so far. <laughs> if only because, like, compared to Fugitive of June, which I sort of I sort of hinted at earlier wasn't my favorite, 
even though it was the more technically proficient one. But Order 55, I would, it's what I love seeing Doctor Who do. Something very big swings for the fences, very intense sort of production design, very, like, very much just trying to be something very unique and weird and strange. And I just really love that Doctor Who can still do that after we had a whole season where there was only one or two episodes that seemed to be swinging in such similar big ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that swinging for the fences is really the thing which um, is sort of delineating this season as something different uh, from the previous one. The fact that it's able to to take these chances and to take those those kind of gambles and, and see what happens. And like, fine, I, like I said before, I, I don't mind Doctor Who that's sloppy. I would far rather that it took a, a swing for something and, and missed. Not that I think Orphan 55 does miss, but I'd far rather that it took a swing and miss than never take a swing at all. And yeah, like the blander kind of episodes from, from last season, they weren't really settling for much more than, than sort of being technically proficient. And there are a few thing few insults I have in my <laughs> in my in my sort of canon than than that are stronger to me than technically proficient. It's just such a nothing and i don't want to be too hard in the last season it's the worst season of doctor who we've ever had but it was just like the sparks of inventiveness in it like talking frogs or or whatever like they only highlighted how kind of ordinary a lot of the material was and like sort of moving on slightly (laughs) how very smooth to uh, nikola tesla's night of terror interesting title um i think it's one of those things that again it isn't I don't think a hundred percent successful in what it's doing, but at least I feel like it's it's like trying to do something. There's a real attempt at commentary there, and you know we you know we we get ideas which are, I think are important at the moment, like the idea that um like the immigrant is somebody who's useful and contributes to society. There's that scene where where Tesla has to say, actually, I'm an American citizen, and you know really assert himself as that. That's not a valuable thing to be saying in a time when people are so openly hostile towards sort of immigration. You know, we get to explore the complex relationship between two two you know, scientists from the start of the 20th century that a lot of people know the name, but they don't necessarily know any more about it. We get class commentary with uh, the way that Edison interacts with Graham and how dismissive and condescending he is. All that stuff is fantastic. You know, we get, we, you know, we get treatises on how important, um, like creativity is and, and open-mindedness is. and it's got killer scorpions you know that's that's those are some big swings that's some great stuff for an episode to be covering yeah it's not quite balanced right it doesn't all together come together but it's still really going for something and that is just so such an important kind of animating spark in doctor who it needs to be going for something and everything this season has i think this is a lot the uh, night of terror is probably the safest episode of this season and still feels radically more adventurous and more interesting than almost anything from the last season. Almost anything from the last few seasons. Oh, I can't... Season 9 is pretty wild. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I think uh, it's such like a bold... This is so bold. We haven't seen Doctor Who in a long time. And I feel that it's... That's that so good. And... Even then, like, Nicholas and Terror, and beyond what you just said, all I have to add is Goran Vishnik, I hope I pronounced it correctly, is uh, pretty good as Nikola Tesla. I really like him a lot. And I don't have many thoughts beyond that. But even still, like, 
like you said, it's trying a lot. And even if it's not successful, it's definitely uh, pleasant to watch and not falling on its face when it's trying very hard. And those are all very admirable qualities. And, you know, it's important for Doctor Who, I think, to have that degree of variety. I've, I've seen mm-hmm. some criticism uh, this season about the fact that they haven't been anywhere except Earth. Um, and that's true. I mean, that's also true season one. Um, you know, they don't, you know, Christopher Eccleston doesn't go anywhere except Earth or, or something which is very cl- in close orbit to Earth. Um, but I don't really think that matters as much when you're actually getting the degree of dynamism that you have here. Uh, okay, one of them is an alternative Earth in the future, but it's still, it's still Earth. Um, and I really like the fact that we are getting that degree of variety. And it's not something which I feel is is hindering the show this this sort of time out. And I think I think at some point I might have said, yeah, you know, okay, come on, it's, t- it's time to go somewhere else. But it, it's, it's kind of working for this season. It's giving it at least a degree of um, unity um, without it just feeling like it's, oh, here we are on Earth again. And, and I'm kind of really liking that about this season as well. And to be fair, uh, New York in the 1900s and the far future of, on a sort of spa on the polluted Earth and present Earth, they're so different. <laughs> like yeah, just yeah. In sort of, And it's to the credit of the production design. They've done such a good job in differentiating these areas and these sort of looks for Earth. So it definitely hasn't felt same. Like, I didn't even realize that they were all set on Earth until you pointed that out, just because, yeah, they've done such a good job in differentiating these stories. And I feel like that's... I'd rather have uh, specificity and attention to detail on Earth than we're shooting in a quarry and it's you just have to accept it's an alien planet like it is for, say, the Ghost Monument or the Battle of whatever finale of last season <laughs> <laughs> the battle of the failing season yeah um well and i think sort of to, to slightly bring it back then to sort of fugitive of the jadun um i think one of the other things that that episode is really successful at doing and that we haven't really touched on yet is it does a really good job of establishing gloucester as a location before kind of all the craziness kicks off it's only a small detail but like the fact that we get to see uh, Ruth doing her job as a tour guide the fact that she gets annoyed by somebody or or whatever and there's there's just a little bit of world building that's put in there which allows you to kind of appreciate the environment before we then have the intrusion of the Jadun and then before we have the intrusion of da 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 and then we get the whole episode kind of kicking off and that kind of specificity as you say makes a big difference it, it really strongly means makes it feel like well okay you're not in new york in the in the 19th uh, the early 20th century you're not in you know the far-flung future being uh, attacked by dregs it, it it really helps fugitive of the dune establish itself as its own thing even as it remains part of a spectrum of what's gone on in in you know the previous episodes in the season uh, that's it's, a, it's another really nice trick that that uh, not trick but it's a nice thing that fugitive of the dune is, is able to deliver on yeah i I really think they use that sort of Gloucester filming location with the lighthouse and the cathedral so well. And, I mean, I guess it's easy to sort of put something from a landmark and have it seem distinctive, but it works. It's a good trick. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah, and I guess also just just finally sort of clean up some of the minor elements I haven't talked about. I love the sort of thing the detail we get with these sort of two other characters in sort of Ruth's orbit. Uh, her, I guess you'd call him a companion, 
in the form of uh, Lee Clayton, who is this sort of augmented human who's like defending her. And then you have this very snippy cafe owner who's like <laughs> trying to win her over. And they're both very fun and distinctive characters. And I like the sort of attention to detail that even though these are very throwaway red herring characters, essentially, we still get sort of full personalities for them. Oh, yeah. And again, I think that's one of the things, uh, one of the ways that the episode is able to establish that kind of scene setting is by having these kind of distinct but kind of basically fairly normal characters in, in that environment that you get to you get to appreciate and spend a little time with before, you know, the main plot kind of kicks off. And, and especially the cafe owner, All Ears Alan, um, he's very much kind of like, he's basically a sitcom character and that, that whole thing with the cake and all that kind of stuff. It's very silly, um, but it's 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 meant to be. It's, it's not meant to be something that you take seriously. You know, you're like, he's keeping this this big dossier. And like on, on one hand, you could go, oh, like you're, you're, you're talking about stalking and that shouldn't be something you treat as a, as a joke or whatever. But it's, it's clearly being written as a very kind of light scene it's, it's it's just meant to be a bit of uh, a bit of comedy so that you, you you know you get drawn into these characters and then once you're drawn in we start to get the revelations about them and that's that's fine uh, the, the cafe owner gets killed off by the jadoon so we get to establish you know their ruthlessness again without it just being explained at us and i think that's the other thing that this episode does very well it's much more comfortable showing us stuff than telling us stuff so we don't need to have half a dozen big speeches about, oh, the Jadun are really rigid and they only follow the law and they can only do this and blah, 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 blah. We get a little bit of that just so the audiences are clued in. But much more than that, we just get to see them do the thing that they do. And that feels like a much more kind of organic way of explaining how they interact with things. Yeah, and like I was saying, it's, it's definitely the most natural written the Jadun have been and the most interesting. And though it then sidelines them completely, so you don't really get an exploration of them. It I think it really is sort of the idea of sort of using the entire uh, animal to sort of borrow a phrase. Like everything sort of is placed perfectly and given the, just the correct amount of attention it sort of deserves. And that gives the whole episode sort of full feeling. It's not overstuffed like Orphan 55 or Spyfall, and it's not feeling thin like a lot of episodes last season. It really hits that balance well of things like the Jadoon and Alan serving their purpose and then being shown to the side while things like, say, uh, the Joe Martin Doctor really getting a chance to shine and still having the full time to explore her, as, in as much as Chibnall's willing to explore her at this point in the season. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we need to get enough information about her that we're going to be keyed in and want to find out more, but we don't need to have everything revealed in this episode. And again, I think the episode does a really good job of, of, of striking that balance. Um, to sort of slightly zoom out a little bit... Um, I think one of the things that's most sort of genuinely fascinating about this is that there's still like a bunch of stuff that we haven't talked about yet. We've been going for over an hour. We've been talking longer than the episode itself. We haven't talked about Gat yet. You know, like, who's Gat? Is, is she just some random Gallifreyan? Is she meant to be... Maybe she's the Rani. Or maybe she's Romana. I don't know. Um, but, like, again, it's another thing that we can speculate about. You know, she's certainly got interesting... Uh, eyeshadow so maybe i don't know maybe she comes from the planet of makeup who we just don't know and it's just so many different pieces moving in this episode um you know uh nick briggs to draws vaguely in line with big finish is doing the voice of the jadoon 
uh, or at least the Judoon captain, I think it is. And, uh, you know, he's fantastic at doing that, both with the Hoko Boko, Sofo, Molopo, and, and when they're being translated into English. And there's just there's so many millions of things going on in this episode. And it all feels like it comes together. Nothing feels like a ball got dropped. And that's just, that's just great, man. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's a really energizing episode of Doctor Who. It really makes me happy for where the season is going. And, yeah, I I, I feel like talking about it and appreciate the season a lot more. I feel like I've been kind of down on it. But now that sort of thinking about putting it all into place, I, yeah, I do think that it's going pretty well. And I am really happy with what's coming next. Well, I mean, that sounds like a perfect way of, of sort of summing up this, this episode and, and sort of bringing the discussion to a close. Fantastic. So, um, great. Well, that's that's going to be our, our coverage for Fugitive of the Jadoon. Um, Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? Sure. You can email us at you at gmail.com. And I promise on episodes where we're not running an hour already, we'll be able to cover it and talk about your letters. <laughs> Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Talking Who to You. You can find me on Twitter at Kev Kozer, that is K E V K O E S E R. You can find more JG's writings at jgmccory.scott, that is J G M C Q U A R R I E dot Scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Now, at the end of our previous episode, I announced that we were going to be doing Son of the Dragon. Now, obviously, that's not what we've done this week because we have jumped into our emergency episode. However, next week, it will be Son of the Dragon. So next week, we shall be visiting the Fifth Doctor, Perry and Aramem. And we'll be encountering Vlad Dracula. So we very much hope that you're going to join us for that. But until then, keep talking. <laughs>